So as we make the transition from at least outward silence, inward, it may be another question, but at least outward silence, as we make that transition from outward silence to a more interactive time, it can sometimes feel jarring. And that is to be expected sometimes, and it's okay. I, I was reflecting on my own experience um, over 25 years ago when I was doing the first retreats. And I, I think I mentioned this in the small group that I would experience the greatest understanding and peace and wisdom, or so it seemed, uh, on the retreats. And then I would go back into my daily life and sometimes I would um, get into conflicts immediately. Sometimes it would take a day or two. (laughs) And it was uh, humbling and it seemed hard and the, the obvious solution seemed to be to be on permanent retreat. <laughs> that may have occurred to some of you. Uh, and there was an, a period a little bit later when I lived at the um, Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts for the better part of eight months. And I had an unusual arrangement. And maybe it led me to collaborate in this kind of retreat. I was living in a cottage across the street from the retreat center, and I had made a proposal. I was a student at the time, and I made a proposal that I would work on my studies like six hours a day, and I'd be part of the retreat the rest of the day. And um, they agreed, and I was really happy. So I uh, followed the schedule. I got up at 4.30 um, and usually went to sleep about 11 or 11.30, and did my studies six hours a day and was in silence pretty much the whole day and practiced about 10 hours a day. And I, there was something about that experience, particularly the going back and forth. So I went back and forth because basically I would do my studies like from, I think from 7, I would get up at 4.30, we'd sit, we'd have breakfast, kind of like this schedule. I'd have, do my studies between 7 and 10, and then I'd join the retreat for an hour, hour and a half, and I'd have lunch. Then I'd come back and I'd work from 1 to 4. And then I'd join the retreat till 11 <laughs> at night. And so I was going back and forth, sort of, you could, even though I was in outward silence, you know, I was you know, working with um, studies, and I was trying to do writing and so forth. And um, it was sometimes hard and it was a different mindset. And so it felt like I would be going back and forth over and over and over again. And there was something in that experience of those eight months which really shifted things, that I learned a little bit better to go back and forth. And I know from the interviews, from the groups, that that's hard. You know, it's, it can feel jarring. It can feel like we're um, leaving where we want to be to come to some interaction of uncertain value. It can feel like that, maybe not for... You know, for some, you're really into it, but I know for some that it, it's not so easy. And there was something about that experience which kind of worked that out. I learned to go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, many times a day for whatever, you know, many days, eight months worth. And there was something that 
um, changed that whole going back and forth. It also gave me a sense of the benefits of going back and forth between silence and interaction. And I was reflecting on that, that there's something akin to that in, the, in many indigenous traditions where the idea of the shaman is someone who is skilled in going back and forth between the worlds. That's a job description for a shaman. And it may be similar to what, you, what we've taken on, to go back and forth. So we should know that sometimes it is jarring, sometimes it's hard, and to be aware of that, and just to see that as part of the territory, part of the training, we might say, that we, that we go through. And the Buddha talked often about the spiritual practice of the people he was working with as a kind of training. The word is uh, bhavana in in Pali, but it's usually translated as training. And he really used, or at least it's translated in a way that is akin to our sense of training, that sense of constant work with core perspectives or principles and core practices over and over again. Not the weekend workshop to solve all your problems approach. It's, it's rather, this, this practice really does work with constancy, consistency, repetition of effort, doing it over and over again. And I think that's actually, in my experience, that's how learning occurs. Learning sometimes occurs by blazing insight. But more typically it occurs by repetition of the same Um, difficulty and suffering over and over again until we finally see into it with a kind of blazing insight into the totally obvious, you might say. Um, But that is actually, I I don't really want to belittle it, it's actually an important insight into uh, a pattern that may be going on and we finally see something. And it does take the constant coming back. That's my experience and I think that's the that's the, the spirit of the practice. So it takes, it, it, that's the sense of training, keeping on coming back. So today, uh, I want to help us explore the theme of conflict. And it could be a conflict in relationships. Well, almost certainly it is. But it could be an inner conflict. It could be a conflict at work. It could be a conflict in family with a partner could be a conflict of um, which path should I follow or what direction should I go or where should I go now in my life. And I'd like you to, um, in preparation for what we'd be doing, and my hope is that I can give, again, some perspectives and some concrete tools, many of which we've, we've already explored, that can give you here a sense of, okay, if I want to work with conflict in the spirit of my practice. Here are my training guidelines. And I'll give you some handouts so you can take away with you if you want to go home and say, okay, I'm in training. Every time a conflict comes up, I have to remember I'm in training rather than just assume I'm right and the other person's wrong. <laughs> and that's my hope for the, for the time here that we, that we can have a sense of what that training would be, a taste of it, enough to really take home. And I'll give, again, I'll give some handouts that give some very concrete guidelines for working with conflict 
in a way that is continuous with our practice um, when, we, when we leave here. So to start with, I'd like you to reflect, this is just for yourself, on a conflict in your life right now. Again, it could be a conflict uh, that's more within yourself. You know, like, should I do this or do that? It could be an interpersonal conflict, again, at work, in your family, in your relationships. And I'd like you to reflect on a conflict of hopefully moderate difficulty, not the most difficult kind of conflict, and, and particularly not a conflict in which your physical safety is at stake. We can bring practice to those situations, but I, that's not the kind of um, conflict where I think we get training. We get training in the moderate conflicts that we have a lot. So there may be, it may be a particular situation that's that where there's a conflict, or it may be a particular person with whom there is kind of chronic conflict, chronic difficulty. And so this, again, is just for you. So bring the image of the situation to mind. And you might be very concrete in terms of visualizing the person, if it's another person, maybe some actual situations that you've experienced. You might bring to mind even some of the interactions, if there are that, if there are interactions. If you can, also be aware, as we were exploring with uh, Mary's instruction this morning, if there are particular emotions that are present that you feel are arising, be aware of those. You might even check into how you feel in your body. What's the feeling when you are in the midst of this conflict?
So we'll come back to that particular conflict. Um, and hopefully it's one that you have an interest in um, finding better understanding of and maybe even an, an approach to that conflict. So we will work through different tools that can um, explore that, that uh, conflict. And we'll do that in, in, the, next, um, in the next hour or so. And I thought it was, uh, was very interesting in, in preparing to um, explore conflict. Um, last night, um, I had a very striking dream. Um, Donald Rumsfeld came to my house. <laughs> and I'll tell you more about the dream later. Uh, but it was very interesting. Though. I'm, I'm about to explore conflict. And Donald Rumsfeld comes to my house. And um, I'll just say a little bit now. He was actually, um, my mother invited him. <laughs> and he was actually sick. <laughs> and he came to my house and he was, um, we offered him my bed to recuperate in. So it was a, it was a deep dream, you know. I mean, you could, those, a lot of your work with dreams are kind of probably feeling the interpretive mechanisms moving. <laughs> uh, and, and when he, um, I'll just say a word or two more, but when he woke up, he saw that right near my bed, I had all these, I had a lot of quotations on the wall, and a lot of them were about U.S. foreign policy. I had, a, I had a long quotation from Noam Chomsky on the wall, and he woke up and he just started reading Noam Chomsky. So, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, everyone know who Noam Chomsky is? Yeah. So, um, persistent critic of U.S. foreign policy, to say, to put it mildly. And, and I'll come back to the dream um, when in a little bit in a little while. Um, so, conflict is a very uh, powerful area. Um, you know, we could see ourselves being here on retreat, maybe when we think of our spiritual practice, we could think of ourselves as aspiring towards developing love and compassion, um, forgiveness, a sense of connection. You know, I was looking, we could read the words of the Buddha about how we should be. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, and so forth. You know, we can hear that and think, well, I should be, I should be loving. You know, and we can ask, where does conflict have a, have a place there? And we, we might really um, think that if we're spiritual, conflict is a sign of a problem with us, you know, or that we shouldn't really want to be around conflict. When we look to conflict in the world, it seems that a great deal of conflict is linked with repetitive cycles of hatred and ignorance and people being unethical and self-centered and so forth. And we can really develop an attitude that if we're, if we're really being spiritual, there's no place for conflict, or we shouldn't have conflict, or we should um, avoid conflict. And it's, it's quite um, a tendency. You know, I think, I know for myself, 
uh, and for many others. And it's no coincidence that in many spiritual communities, among many spiritual practitioners, um, there's a kind of a shadow area around conflict. People have a hard time sometimes dealing with conflict, with issues of power or authority or differences um, and being angry and so forth. And so conflict for many of us can appear to be a territory that we don't want to enter into. And it's very hard to know how to enter into it if we're continuing to think of ourselves as spiritual. You know, and, and you know, personally, my own um, upraising was to be a nice person. Is anyone else, was anyone else raised to be nice? <laughs> so, need I say more? Uh, but it's, it's the, you know, there's the, the danger that will, when we, that will actually set up a conflict between being spiritual and being in conflict. You know? And there's another alternative, you know, that, that I really want to suggest, which is that conflict, in a way, can be a great source of learning, and that we can work with conflict in a, as continuous with our practice. I think we believe somehow that when we enter into conflict, it necessarily leads to a kind of war, to dualistic separation between people, you know, uh, self-centeredness, and so forth. And yet, we can really approach conflict in a different way. The Buddha once said, actually, that it's only when we experience difficulties and conflict that we actually know where we are. That if we remove ourselves from conflicts and in a way don't test ourselves, we may be quite um, deluded about our level of spiritual awakening. A friend of mine who's a Vietnamese monk named um, uh, Minduk, Venerable Minduk, who is a Dharma heir of Thich Nhat Hanh, he, for a long time, he's actually not doing it now, but for a long time, as a monk, he worked with um, teenagers in trouble, basically. He was a counselor. He worked 30 hours a week, and he brought his paycheck home to the um, temple in San Jose. And Thich Nhat Hanh came to see him, and he said, you know, at our monastery, a lot of our monks and nuns think that they're pretty awakened, they haven't been tested. You're getting tested because those teenagers, they don't care who you are, (laughs) right? They don't care what kind of, what you look like or whether your head is shaved or whatever. They just want to know whether you're a good person, basically. They just want to know whether you can listen well and so forth. And he said, you know what? You're getting tested. My monks and nuns, they're not necessarily getting tested. And the Buddha told this story, really making the same point. He told the story of this um, housewife. It's actually from the same uh, sutta that Mary quoted from earlier about the bandits song you <laughs> limb by limb. He told the story of a housewife named Vedahika, who had this um, wonderful reputation for being peaceful and gentle and so forth. She had a maid named Kali. 
when you hear that Kali is a maid in the story, you always want to look out. <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> so Kali said, this is, from, this is from this text, Kali said, a good report about my lady, Vedahika, has spread thus. Mistress Vedahika is kind. Mistress Vedahika is gentle. Mistress Vedahika is peaceful. How is it that while she does not show anger, is it nevertheless present in her? Or is it absent? Or is it just because my work is so good that my, <laughs> my lady shows no anger, even though it is actually present in her? Suppose I test her. So the maid Kali got up late. Mistress Vedahika said, Hey, Kali, what is it, madam? What is the matter that you get up so late? Nothing is the matter. Nothing is the matter, you wicked girl. You get up so late. And she was angry and displeased. And she scowled. Then the maid Kali thought, the fact is that while my lady does not show anger, it is actually present in her, not absent. And it is just because my work is so good that my lady shows no anger, though it is actually present in her. Suppose I test her a little more. (laughs) So she got up still later in the day. Mistress Vedahika said, Hey, Kali, what is it, madam? What's the matter that you get up later in the day? Nothing is the matter. Nothing is the matter. You wicked girl, yet you get up later in the day. And she was angry and displeased, and she spoke words of displeasure. Kali thought, The fact is that while my lady does not show anger, it is actually present in her, not absent. Suppose I test her a little more. And so she got up still later, and same dialogue. Hey, Kali, what's it? What's going on? What's the matter? You get up still later. Nothing is the matter. Nothing is the matter, you wicked girl. She was angry and displeased, and she took a rolling pin, gave her a blow on the head, and cut her head. (laughs) Then the maid Kali, with blood running from her cut head, spoke about her mistress to the neighbors. See, ladies, the kind ladies work. See, ladies, the gentle ladies work. See, ladies, the the peaceful ladies work. How can she become angry and displeased with her only maid for getting up late? How can she take a rolling pin, give her a blow on the head, and cut her head? And at that point, the Buddha intervenes (laughs) and says, Just so, practitioners, some practitioner can be very kind, gentle, peaceful, as long as disagreeable courses of speech do not touch that person. Or you could say, as long as conflicts do not come. But it is when disagreeable courses of speech touch that person that can be understood whether the practitioner is really kind, really gentle and peaceful. And, and so there's, I think there's a very strong place in the practice for actually encountering difficulties, encountering conflicts, where our practice is not so much just to set up these optimal situations, but it's to enter in to difficulties and bring our practice there. There's a beautiful passage from the Mahayana teacher Shantideva from the 8th century, and in the, who is the favorite author of the Dalai Lama. And Shantideva has this wonderful line. He, he, he really talks about the importance of working with opponents, with people with whom one has conflict, as a way of learning. He says this, Therefore, just like treasure appearing in my house, without any effort on my behalf to obtain it. I should be happy to have an enemy, for my enemy assists me in my conduct of awakening. Different perspective, right? (laughs) 
different perspective. And the Dalai Lama himself, he, he says this, in dependence on a spiritual teacher, you can form an understanding of patience, but you cannot gain an opportunity to practice patience. For that, you need an, en- an enemy. In order to develop true and unbiased love and compassion, you must practice with an enemy. Therefore, think of the enemy as the best of teachers. And considering the enemy, in this sense, to be kind, view the enemy with respect. Hmm. can take that back to your conflict. <laughs> right? And so the question is, how do we do that? How do we practice with conflict so that we can learn? How can we take our conflicts as a source of training, as a place of training? And so what I'd like to do for the rest of the morning, I'd like to explore how to do that practice more internally and then in the afternoon focus on it more externally. By internally I mean what do we do with our own awareness in the midst of conflict. In the afternoon, I'll focus a little more how do we work with another, with the whole situation. So I think it's helpful to actually look at both perspectives. The, the internal work we do, because there are conflicts with others where we actually can't do much externally, right? Where, we, where some things are out of our power. Perhaps, to some extent, my relationship with Donald Rumsfeld is, is somewhat... Somewhat at, not entirely, as is evident, but it's but there there are conflicts where where it takes two to tango and the other one person doesn't want to cooperate, doesn't want to resolve the problem. There are situations like that. So sometimes all we can do is the inner practice. And it can be very, very effective. And actually the inner practice can substantially change the nature of the conflict. Because if it takes two to tango and we're not tangoing, guess what? And some, I'm sure many of us have experienced that. Because the, the Buddha once said, I do not fight with the world, but the world fights with me. So the Buddha had conflicts. The Buddha had, was in the midst of conflicts. At one point, some of you know, his cousin actually tried to kill him. So it's actually very interesting to look at the Buddha's life because he had to deal with conflict. But he said, he basically was saying, internally, I don't keep the conflict going. He had come to that point. And so there is both the internal work and the external work. So what I'd like to do is to, point, is to identify a few ways of doing the internal work. And with some of these, we'll do some, some inner practices ourselves. So I'm, I really want to point to... Um, Five steps to working with conflict in an internal way. And I'll give some of my own stories. A lot of my learning about conflict got crystallized about eight or nine years ago when I was in a position of being chair of the faculty of our graduate school. And I had to deal 
with that this should all be totally confidential. Vow of confidentiality, agreed? <laughs> okay. I'll have to, I don't know what we're going to do about the tape. <laughs> it's, it's okay, well, we'll think about that later. Um, and and, all, and I, I think that goes for the whole retreat, right? That we are talking about things which we should, we take a vow of confidentiality here with everything that we mention. And so I was um, going in about every two weeks and having a two, sometimes three-hour meeting with both the president of the graduate school, who actually happened to be named President Bush. But <laughs> that's, that's true. But, uh, and, and I also met with the dean. And my view is that the president, he was this big, blustery guy, like 6'4", about 250. And um, I don't think he had... Um, a tremendous amount of uh, practice in listening. I could say it differently. <laughs> but in any case, my experience was that I would sometimes uh, say things, I would be talking with him, and I found that a conflict was developing. There was a conflict there, and I would be with him, and I would be saying things, and he would, I would say something, and he would change the subject and not, in some ways, recognize what I was saying, and there were kind of power stuff going on. It was, a, it was an interesting conflict. And for the first period of time, I think I was just kind of um, a little bit lost, and um, one major approach to conflict was just to say, I'm right, you're wrong. You know? And that, that sets up a kind of a war, sets up a kind of a dualism. And I would be judgmental, and I would say, why is this guy president? You know? You know, I mean, what does... You could figure out the rest, right? <laughs> dot, dot, dot. And so there was a kind of conflict. And at a certain point, and I was being helped by a mentor with this, at a certain point, I think I, I entered in what I would call the first step of working with conflict, which is forming the intention to learn from the conflict. It would be taking the view of Shantideva, my enemy, so-called, my partner in conflict, is someone with whom I can learn. And I would start to go in there and have that intention that this isn't just another bad experience, but it's actually a chance to learn. It's a chance to learn something. And I think part of that intention is also a commitment to ethics, commitment to following the precepts. So I would say this is sort of the starting point for taking conflict as part of our practice. Step one one would be a combination of having the intention to learn and then the intention also to work with the precepts. Very important. Can I take this as a time when I will uh, keep the commitment to not harming, not trying to harm, not using problematic speech? We could talk about that as the, in psychological language, we would say that's the container. It helps frame the whole interaction as something we can learn from. And so I would say that's the starting point. A second step is to identify 
What do I experience in the conflict? What's my act? Remember, this is the inner work, that we're focusing on the inner work. So the second step would be to say, what am I actually experiencing in the conflict? Because interestingly enough, when we really look carefully, what makes conflicts difficult? We assume, often, that what makes conflicts difficult is that I have to deal with a difficult person. I have to deal with someone who has all these problems or all these ways that the person could be better. We tend to externalize the reason for the conflict and think that the blame lies with the other. And we may actually perceive qualities of the other person which can be um, quite accurate. Indeed, sometimes conflict helps us be incredibly accurate. Do you know that? (laughs) You can see things you never would have thought about about the other person. And yet, when you look carefully, what's difficult about a conflict is that we have difficult experiences. We have experiences of anger or frustration or fear or shame. And so, again, it's not to say that this is the only way to work with a conflict situation, but a very vital part of working with a conflict situation is to see it as a chance to work with our own difficult experiences. What do I do when this comes up? What do I do when anger comes up? What do I do when disappointment comes up? To what extent, when I'm angry or disappointed, do I throw away my spiritual practice? So I'd like you now just to, again, go more within and ask yourself, bring yourself back to that conflict situation and ask yourself, what are the different states that I experience in this conflict that make it difficult? And this is really a second step. It's identifying what the difficult inner experiences are in a conflict. What are some of those states that you could identify that that came up? You can just name them. Fear. Blame. Blame. 
frustration, you know. Uncertainty. Uncertainty. Inadequacy. Inadequacy. A kind of judgment of oneself or, or others, you know. When I went to a, a present conflict, I, I found sadness, anger. What else? Outrage. Outrage. Insecurity. Insecurity. Yeah. Aversion. Aversion. Shame. Shame. Doubt. Doubt. So one way to look at conflicts is that they give us an opportunity to work with difficult emotions, difficult uh, mental states. And we can see them more clearly and learn how to work skillfully. We don't want them to be there necessarily, but we can say, what's difficult for me about a conflict is that um, these states come and they both may be painful in themselves, and they may also, I may also um, become triggered and reactive. Now, we can experience these states without necessarily um, being reactive. By reactive, I mean some kind of um, automatic, conditioned, relatively unconscious way of that one stimulus leads to a certain state. Like in my situation that I was describing, I found myself that when I wasn't listened to, it no doubt went way back to early childhood. When I wasn't listened to, I would... Actually, I wouldn't actually feel a lot of what I was feeling. I would just find myself going off and withdrawing emotionally and kind of moving to a stance of um, judgmental, distanced, moral superiority. Some of you, I know, occasionally go there, <laughs> right? And, and I, you know, so it would be the re- what I meant by reactivity is that there'd be the moment of not listening to, and then a moment later, I would be in that distanced place, right? That's how, that's the nature of a reaction. That is, and so when we, one way to look at these conflicts, not the only way again, but one way is to say, they're an opportunity to study our reactive patterns. They're an opportunity to really closely look at them. And um, that is a very significant part of working with conflict. Because for me, when I would be reactive, I would be fairly incapable of really doing anything positive about the situation. I would be out there. I wouldn't even be connected anymore. And I think if you look at your conflicts where you kind of feel like they trigger you so you get a little lost, they're all some version of that, right? And so to really be able to respond to a conflict with wisdom and compassion, we can't really be lost in reactivity. We have to somehow work with that to come, kind of to come through it somewhat, to come to a place where we can be more present and have the resources of some degree of wisdom and compassion there. When we're caught in reactivity, we'll tend to fight the war. We'll just tend, and it may, or we'll tend, usually, I should say, we'll probably tend to either uh, fight 
or flee, right? Dependent on our preferred defense mechanisms. So the third step in working with conflict is to begin to study really closely some of our core patterns of reactivity. And this is, um, this is extremely challenging. But it's, I think, for me, in my own experience, this has been right at the heart of being, bringing practice to difficult areas of life. Actually, to, even to positive ones, because in, in the teachings of the Buddha, reactivity is not just to react against the uh, negative by trying to push it away. It's also grabbing hold of the positive. And so being aware of our own patterns of reactivity and studying them over and over and over again, to me, that constitutes training in working with conflict. It is not easy. It takes time. One has to, um, I think, first of all, and this is really what I want to say the third step is, the third step is to begin to identify a core reactive pattern. And the fourth step would be to just watch it over and over again. Study it. Explore it. Be mindful with it. So let me say a little bit about the third step of identifying the pattern. I think we start to do this with mindfulness and maybe with some degree of insight. And so I would ask you to reflect on your situation of conflict right now and see if you can point to a core pattern of your own reactivity. See if that's something that's accessible to you. And you might think of that in terms of a kind of a sequence. You know, there can be a stimulus like the president not listening to me, and then it causes a reaction, and then I go somewhere. And I might go to anger, I might go to distancing, but usually there's some kind of stimulus and some kind of reaction that leads me to be in a difficult state, all of what we mentioned. So see if you can identify the pattern in your own conflict situation. See if you can get a sense of what usually triggers me and where do I go. That's, that's enough to identify. What, what might trigger me and where do I go? Where do I end up? You know, or what, what's the trigger which leads me into a sense of shame or fear or inadequacy or anger?
I'd like you to we'll explore this just for a short while with a partner. And so find a partner. We have an even number now. Find a partner. Um, it doesn't matter. The main thing would be someone you might feel comfortable talking about this area with. And say hello, introduce yourself if you don't know the person's name. And we'll really follow something like the same pattern that we've done with speech. Um, Each person will have maybe four minutes just to talk about the, see if you can particularly talk about what is the uh, pattern of reactivity. You might, uh, you have a few minutes, but you might want to define the, uh, the situation a little bit. So, can the person farthest from me go second? <laughs> okay, so raise your hand if you're going first. Okay. And the first person will be a speaker, and then um, and the, the second person, a listener. We'll do the same kind of practices we've done the last two days in terms of being receptive and so forth and listening. And... Um, set and, and remember also the speech practices. So you may want to recall the speech practices of truthful, helpful, kind, and appropriate. Your person with whom you're in conflict does not have a representative here. <laughs> and so, so set your intention for both being a speaker and a listener in terms of how you want to work with this next uh, few minutes. Okay. It's okay? Testing. Okay. <laughs> so any, anything to report or reflect on? Was it, um, were, were the reactive patterns accessible to, to identify them? For how many people were they, were they could you access them somewhat? Okay. For how many people were they a little hard to access? Okay. So any, anything else to reflect on? Please, Melissa. I have a question. I'm okay. a little confused with the first, I mean, the second step when you, what's your experience? Yeah. And then the third, your reaction. And in your example, I thought that your reaction was kind of distancing, but... Yeah. Um, and just, is there a lot of, can there be a lot of overlap? Yeah, I think, I, think, I think the second step, as I'm calling it, is just really starting to name what the states are. Um, well, it's not necessarily reactive, but it's just what might be difficult. In other words, I can be very sad 
without being reactive. Uh, so it's, the second is more naming the actual states, such as people mentioned. Uh, and they, they, they may be very much uh, connected with a pattern of reactivity. In other words, my, the pattern may lead me to be angry and really, really angry. So there is, I think you're right, there is some overlap. But I'm thinking of the second step as more an initial naming of the territory. And then with the third step, we get a little bit more precise and we say, oh, this happens, then I go there. You know, that, that's what I'm meaning by a pattern of reactivity. Or I, I go somewhere, right? Or what's, um, what is really my... Um, sort of this, this pattern which, t- which especially gets me lost. You know? Because I may be in a conflict, like I say, and be quite sad, but it may not be reactive. It may be uh, just this is what I feel with a difficult situation. Does that help some? Mm-hmm. Okay. Any other reflections or what you found, Diana? Yeah. In that reaction. Yeah. And we both discussed the situation, a very similar situation. Yeah. And we really felt like we only had two choices in the situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And both of them were, were hard, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm actually going to give a little more attention to that in the afternoon because part of what is needed in conflicts is to actually somehow um, break out of a very confined way of seeing the situation. Because conflicts, in difficult conflicts, there's this breakdown of imagination. You know, we could say a breakdown, kind of a failure of imagination. We just get locked in a war and we sometimes can't even access what we might in other situations access. So for right now, we're not trying actually to resolve the conflicts. We're just trying to see what's present. So for you to notice that it feels very narrow, is great. Because we're just trying to see what's, see what's there. You know, I, I think this does, and it, it, it does take this identification of what's there. We can't sort of, I don't think we can go towards a transformation of the conflict without really being, as it were, gosh, I was going to say, my metaphor was going to be in the trenches. <laughs> <laughs> so... So I think this uh, identification of what's there, like you've done, is, is helpful. Anything else? Please, Kim. I found it difficult to use the wise speech when I was talking about my enemies. Yeah. You know, issues. And so I found I was kind of stumbling over how to phrase it. Yeah. And about halfway through, I was like, gosh, what if he's her son? You yeah. know, you kind of switch things, yeah. like, you know, um, you know, like, what if, you know, like, okay. It was, it was a little easier to try to It's a great observation, you know, and I was even reflecting that probably the way I characterized the situation was uh, not great speech. You know, even the way I did it, talking about blustery and all that, you know, that was probably, on reflection, that was not really, uh, there may, that may not have been really kind. I was sort of creating a caricature, right? So, um, so I think we can, we can note how that speech is difficult and aspire. I think the yeah, just to, to see how that is difficult. Yeah. Please. Yeah. I, I had to come up with two conflict situations because I realized that um, I react, my, my pattern is different mm-hmm. to 
Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, it's it's. I'm sorry. So you're really seeing two core patterns of reactivity, yeah. yeah. And that's that's probably true of, uh, for most of us. I think I'm trying here to simplify and not deal with all of our conflicts, but just work with one of them, maybe. But it is helpful to know, yeah. There are, you know, in some situations, I may my reaction may be to fight, in other ones it may be to flee. Those are going to look pretty different, right? And some I may feel I'm the stronger, in other ones, I may feel I'm the weaker or the lesser, and we're going to, it's going to look different there. So with this, the third step I'm calling it is, is this trying to see the reactive pattern and to look at it, to start to be able to name it. And then it's like the naming is very powerful because as we name it, we can start looking for it when it comes up. And we start studying it over and over. This is what I'm calling the fourth step, which is the, the, the exploration of that reactive pattern over and over and over again. And so at a certain point in the situation I was mentioning, I was feeling a lot of insight. Oh my gosh, this is a, I, didn't, I couldn't have said so clearly what I just said about my reactive pattern before I started investigating it. And there was... There was learning. There was some interest, excitement. You know, I'm really learning something. Oh, gosh, I, it's not like a, that's the only place where I use that pattern, <laughs> right? And I could start to see things and learn. I started to get really interested in learning, and I had these meetings for about um, twice a month for two years, so my training schedule was um, set up. <laughs> Rigorous. Rigorous. <laughs> and, and, um, and so I would go there, and sometimes I would go there, you know, and for me at that time it was an issue. I don't have enough time for spiritual practice. And I would go there and I would say, today is a retreat day. And I would meditate in the morning, and I would go on public transportation, I would do metta on public transportation, I would do walking meditation on the way to where we were having the meeting, and I would really say, um, I'm going to really look for that reactive pattern. <laughs> <laughs> really study it, and uh, it's another story. What to do, you know, once you've seen it, and then how to respond skillfully. That I'm not even mentioning that much here. Uh, but but the, this first step, I would go. I would feel almost like a martial artist when when this happens. When I feel when I experience aggression as if it's coming towards me, I want to really look carefully internally and see what's happening. You know, it's really like notice in the very midst of things that tendency to reactivity. You know, it's something that, that um, people also do very much um, in martial arts sometimes. You know, that when you do martial arts, you do a training where you have uh, like in... I, I did Tai Chi for four years, and, um, and I think it's very similar to Aikido. You have energy coming towards you, and you study what your normal reactivity is to this energy coming towards you, and you, you learn to see, oh, this is what I usually do. And then you start learning some other responses. 
And so that's very much the spirit of, of this. So the fourth would be studying it over and over again, naming it. I found it extremely helpful to have a lot of support for that, to have you know, um, someone who could help me encourage because that person could see the same pattern in me in other situations, right? And could really help me and, and say, okay, really look at it. See what it's like when, that, when this happens and study it. And I could also begin to study it in meditation. I could study it in other circumstances. I could see, okay, what do I do when I don't feel listened to? You know, what do I, what's it like? Can I look at that? And we start having this tremendous interest in our own ways that we lose it, which is against the normal conditioning, right? We start to have this great interest in saying, I really want to look carefully at my own reactivity and name the patterns and start seeing them you know, and, and watch them over and over and over again. And um, you know, I, I've, I've done this on the cushion. I um, worked once with looking at my tendency to be uh, judgmental. And I worked with judgments in a, at first in a two-month retreat, doing practices with judgments about, uh, about 10 times 10 minutes a day that were basically looking carefully at reactive patterns of being judgmental and just studying them over and over and over and over again. And something happens when you do that. You start seeing, oh, well, this is how it works. And there's a natural wisdom which comes from just the looking, 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 looking. That's our mindfulness practice. It's very powerful. Not always easy or fun. Remember that. (laughs) (laughs) Not always easy or fun, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned about, you know, both sides of it, the pushing away as well, also for grasping, and I was thinking of it in the context of like a near enemy, just like yeah. indifference is a near enemy to equanimity, for example. Yeah. So for me, an issue is being not, not being taken seriously yeah. about something I want to do. Yeah. And so, you know, that has its own reactive pattern. But yeah. in a sense, a near enemy is how do I respond when somebody does take me seriously? Mm-hmm. Because then I'm also in some way investing some sense in you know, somebody else's opinion outside of myself and coming mm-hmm. out of center as well. And that mm-hmm. um, to b- bring both of those sides in there mm-hmm. seems to me really potent mm-hmm. to, yeah. to you know, flip it on, on its end too. Yeah, yeah it's really, because what we're really doing is we're investigating all of these patterns. And you're right, there is a flip side to it. Right? There's a flip side to, you know, if I would look more deeply at my... Um, being reactive when someone doesn't listen, there's, there's a lot I can look at in myself. To what extent do I not listen to myself? Right? And um, to what extent do I, um, do I depend for my happiness on thinking that other people are listening? There's a lot, we could go a lot of directions with that one. But I think the, what, I, what I more want to... I want to keep it also simple this morning. We, this is complicated. We could spend 10 weeks looking at conflict and work with it. What I'm trying to do is give a somewhat simple model that does require taking the model and working with it, but I'm trying to give this model. And I want to really finish by mentioning a fifth aspect because most of what we've mentioned so far um, with the second through the fourth has especially to do with mindfulness practice. And I want to bring back what Mary was talking about, that there's a real place in working with conflict for using the power of metta and loving kindness and compassion and forgiveness. And 
it's something that we can really work with. That there, I like sometimes to think of our practice as having these two aspects. One, we go right into the phenomena. We study them, we go deeply into them, we use mindfulness, we look carefully. And there's also the way that when we use metta, we're operating in a little different way. When we bring love or forgiveness to a situation, we're sometimes, if there's, if there's a difficulty, we're, we're softening things. We're giving some, almost like some, some heart, some, almost like the stability of the heart to a difficult situation. We're, um, and, and so I think the work with metta is really, really crucial the work with metta and loving-kindness. So I want to just sort of finish this morning by having us just do metta with the person with whom we're in conflict for about five or ten minutes. Yeah, please. So what was five? The fifth step was more or less metta. Okay, more, yeah. Um, but by that I'm, I'm bringing in metta and forgiveness and compassion. And I think I'll... I'll read my Donald Rumsfeld dream because I think it was a meta dream. <laughs> now, probably many of you are psychotherapists and you might have a different interpretation and I'm, I'm running a significant risk here. <laughs> uh, what? Yeah. Yeah. How should you do meta with a, with a situation? I think, well, you're involved with the situation. So you can bring metta to yourself for this difficult, conflictual situation. Yeah. Okay. So what we do in metta is that in a way we, we look towards, we might say, the positive. We look towards, if it's with another person, we look, like the Dalai Lama likes to say, everyone wants to be happy. And maybe we connect more with the commonality that we share Everyone is vulnerable. Everyone wants to be happy. Can I recognize the good qualities of this person? Can I recognize how I want this person to be, um, to be happy? Well, this is appropriate. I don't think my Donald Rumsfeld dream should be on the table. <laughs> so that's a, why don't you just hold? I think that's the end. <laughs> no, that's, not, that's enough. <laughs> What? Yeah, you never know. It gets on the web, and <laughs> Donald Rump, sooner or later, I get a call from Donald Russell. <laughs> so, so anyway, I, I um, when I was with Donald Rumsfeld. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.